Well, now you got to see the rest of the story. And I think it keeps going next week, too, so come on back. I invite you to bow with me once more as we prepare to enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this greatest story ever told. And what makes it so good is that it's true. You really did come, defeat the grave, conquer death, and that now you are alive forevermore. We thank you that you are here once more to speak through your word with this incredible truth and that, Lord, we, your disciples, those who bear your name now, we need a word from you, an encounter with you, our living God, just as those first disciples did. And so we pray, Father, that in your living word, by your Holy Spirit, we would encounter you once more and that you would stir faith afresh and anew in our hearts once more. Speak through these words, I pray, through me, your servant, in Jesus' name. Amen. A story is told of a young man who was one day on his way to visit a friend named John who lived out on a farm. Now, he entered his friend's farm, and as he walked up the lane, he passed by the barn. But as he got near it, he stopped and stared at the barn in utter amazement. For on the barn were painted 20 circular targets. And in the middle of each of these targets was a bullseye. The, not just bullseye, but the exact center of the bullseye was struck in each of the 20 targets. A perfect shot. Whoever had been practicing here must be the crack shot of all crack shots. And so, he, he just couldn't believe that someone could shoot so well. And so he proceeds to go up to the house, and there his friend John meets him. And so, he immediately asked John, I've, I've got to ask you, who in the world did that shooting at the barn? To which John replied matter-of-factly, Well, I did. The friend was astonished. Wait a minute. There are 20 targets with 20 bullseyes, 20 perfect holes in the very center of each bullseye. This is Olympic-caliber shooting. You're you're meaning to tell me that you did this shooting? To which, again, John replied, Yep, I made every shot. Now, just in sheer admiration, the friend asked, well, well, where in the world, how in the world did you ever learn to shoot like that? To which John replied, it's simple. I shot first, then I painted the targets after. <laughs> now, when we think about the truth of Easter, our world, when it focuses on Things like the Easter bunny, the eggs, and the chocolate. And and don't get me wrong, I'm sure some of you are going to enjoy a little bit of chocolate later on today. But when we put the sole focus of Easter on those things, rather than upon the resurrection, the world misses the mark just as badly. But we shouldn't be surprised when an unbelieving world misses the mark about something and, and focuses on something completely arbitrary instead. However, what does come as a surprise to us is that as we look at the gospel account, we find that Jesus' own disciples also missed the mark badly on that very first Easter Sunday. For there, as we've seen in the presentations this morning, they, they were huddled and scared together, hiding behind locked doors. But more than just scared, they were devastated and heart-weary from grief. For their way of thinking 
to, to their way of thinking and following Jesus all of these years, it wasn't supposed to happen like this. They had thought the Messiah would come and he would, he would drive out their enemies. He would defeat the Romans. He would ascend to the throne of Israel. And there they would be just to left to argue about who would sit at his right and left hands in the kingdom. This wasn't how they envisioned events unfolding. They had given up everything to follow Jesus, remember. They had left behind careers, fishing boats, fathers, families. Some of them left behind wives. And for three years, they had watched, listened, learned, been challenged, been corrected, so that they in turn could follow Jesus no matter what. Yet, when we see the hour of truth came, the guards come in the garden, Judas betrays him with a kiss, had they stood firm? No, they all turned and ran like cowards. Some of them denied they even knew him at all. Those that had come back to watch in horror the bloodthirsty spectacle of Jesus' trial and crucifixion had done so discreetly or from afar. And so on Easter Sunday evening, in John's Gospel, chapter 20, we find here the disciples huddled together behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And here we see them discouraged, defeated, disillusioned, demoralized, depressed, and filled with nothing but despair and doom. In short, for them, all hope was gone. They had hit rock bottom. They were weary in every way, heart, mind, and soul, defeated, depleted, nothing left. They needed to encounter the risen Lord in their lockdown. Now, as extreme as the events of that first Good Friday and Easter Sunday were, I suspect that many of us today can identify in some way with the feelings of the disciples that evening. For as was already mentioned here earlier in the service, just one year ago, we all experienced a, a lockdown Easter of a different sort. A year ago today, with the arrival of COVID-19 virus and the subsequent lockdowns that followed, I had the then very unusual experience of preaching here to an empty church and to a camera, and you had the equally unusual experience of sitting at home on your couch watching me on that same, or from that same camera on your television. And so we did something entirely different a year ago. And we realized that our world can change very quickly, very drastically. In fact, in that sermon a year ago, I had said this. All it took was one global health crisis... And in the span of just about a month, the world as we knew it has changed drastically and indefinitely. And all around us, in almost every sphere of life, we are mired in the fog of uncertainty. Now, I'll simply just change one little phrase from a year ago, and I'll say this. Instead of in just one month, I'll change it to in just one year. And then almost everything else about that statement remains the same today. For we're still living in a drastically changing world. We still have as much fog of uncertainty ahead of us as we did a year ago. And the fact is that just like the first disciples, I think if all of us, you know, rewinded back to just over a year ago and we thought, what is 2020? What is 2021 going to look like? What is my life going to look like? None of us envisioned this. None of us. We all thought, like the disciples, that things were going to keep heading on, you know, just upward and onward, right? Everything, because our lives had been so good, 
Our world had been so stable, our nation so blessed, we couldn't envision something like this happening. But here we are, nevertheless. And just like those first disciples, when things don't go our way or the way that we expect them to go, it can make all sorts of feelings arise within us. And, and we can even begin, like those disciples, to doubt. And we allow fear to control us and, and feelings of doom for the future. And all these different things because of uncertainty, and we begin to go downward, just as the disciples did, and we end up in this depressed place. And so we ask the question, what do we do? Where do we turn? Who can help us? Well, turn with me, if you haven't already, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and there in verse 19, it sets the scene for what I've been referring to as we find the disciples. Verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Now, a couple of important details I want to just highlight once more. On the evening of the first day. This isn't the morning. The whole day has gone by. It's evening. And where do we find them? We find them behind locked doors. Why? For fear. For fear. So this brings us to our first point from this text this morning. The disciples were still living in fear when Jesus was already alive. The disciples were still living in fear when Jesus had already arose. Now, the incredible irony is, Jesus has already done it all. It's over. The resurrection, everything. But the disciples are still living as though Jesus is dead and buried in the grave. Now, we could easily excuse this if they simply didn't know yet. They hadn't been told, right? But when we go back just one verse to John chapter 20, verse 18, there we read this. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So here we see that someone they knew well was an eyewitness to the resurrection. She said, I didn't just see the empty tomb. I saw Jesus and he spoke to me. So here we see they've been told. And yet despite Mary's emphatic declaration that she had seen and spoken to Jesus, it's clear that the disciples weren't putting much stock, if any, in her words. In short, they lacked faith. This in spite of the fact that we go back further still in John's Gospel to verses 3 and 9 of chapter 20, and we see that both Peter and John had already been to the tomb themselves to verify the fact that the stone was indeed rolled away and the tomb was, in fact, empty. In fact, his burial clothing, they, they discovered there, it had been set aside. Evidence. They had seen with their own eyes an eyewitness who comes and says, he spoke to me, and yet here we find them in disbelief, lacking faith. They knew the truth, but they were still missing the mark. Now, it's so easy for us right now to sit here and look down on those disciples. Oh, what a bunch of doubters. I wouldn't have been like that. Really? Do you think you would have been any different if you'd been in their shoes that day? Because even now today, how often don't we do the exact same thing? Because get this. At the exact lowest point of your life, the exact lowest point, wasn't Jesus already alive? 
At the exact moment of this past year and all the things we've been through, at the exact moment that you are filled with the most fear or despair or doubt or hopelessness, wasn't Jesus already risen? Didn't you already know that he had conquered death and the grave? Didn't you already know that he was alive forevermore? And so, too, today, no matter what we currently face, because Jesus is already risen, it makes all the difference. But are we fully persuaded of that? Are we convinced? Do we, in faith, believe all the evidence? Or like those disciples, are we still living in doubt, in fear, in defeat? If so, we too, like the disciples, need a life-changing encounter with the risen Lord. And that is exactly what the Lord provides for his doubting, disbelieving disciples. 19 continues. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. So here we see the second point from this text. When we encounter the risen Lord, he speaks peace to our fears. When we encounter the risen Lord, he speaks peace to our fears. Not once, but twice, Jesus says, Peace be with you. And here we see his shaky disciples. Peace be with you. And the peace that Jesus spoke of was much more than just a sense of calmness. He wasn't just saying, calm down, calm down, boys. That's not what he was saying. It was, it was more than that. Because he was using the single Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom. You've probably heard this term before. It's the greeting that is still used in Israel this very day. Shalom. And in the ancient Hebrew, the word meant this, to make something whole. So it's referring to if there's any brokenness, shalom, be whole, or make it whole. And then there's an overall emphasis of completeness and harmony of mind, body, and estate. So whatever is out of place, whatever is broken, whatever is incomplete, may it come to a place of completeness and harmony of mind, body, and estate. Everything that you own and have. So it's saying shalom, peace over every aspect of your life. Whatever is broken, may it be made whole. This is this all-encompassing word that Jesus spoke to his disciples, not once, but twice. Shalom. However, this shalom, we must note, is not a peace that we make with God, but rather it is a peace that God makes with us. This peace must come from above. It cannot be manufactured from below. It must come from God. For if we return to the fear-filled disciples, they knew the word shalom. They had said it countless times in their lives as the Jewish greeting. But they could not conjure up this shalom on their own. They could not demand peace with God, for they were helpless. Instead, it had to be the divine. It had to be Jesus who then graciously went to them and ushered in the shalom of God. He went to them, defying all barriers. Check this out. They're behind locked doors. How did Jesus get in? Did he have a lockpick kit? 
Is that how he got in? Did he get in through a window that they hadn't barred? How did he get in? It says suddenly he appeared in the midst of them. Suddenly. They probably had guards watching the doors. He didn't sneak in, my friends. He went to them somehow, supernaturally, with his resurrected body. There were no more barriers. Anything that even man put up to try to keep him out were no barrier to him. Suddenly, he stands in the midst of them. It's the same for us, friends. Whatever barriers we might put up to think, you know, I've got these locked doors. I've got, I've got these things around me. I've got safeguards in place. I'm going to keep everything out. Guess who it can't keep out? Can't keep out the Lord. There he stood in the midst of them and said, Shalom. And so, just as Jesus passed through locked doors to speak peace to his disciples, he comes to us. He comes to us and he speaks peace to our hearts today. For the way to the Father is now wide open. And all we must do is receive his gracious offer of Shalom. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access to the Father by one spirit. Jesus speaks peace, he preaches peace, and he is our peace. If you are looking for peace in your life, you are looking for Jesus. For without Jesus, there is no shalom. Without Jesus, there is no peace. He is our peace. And he came to those disciples and he preached peace to those who were near. And praise the Lord, he also preached peace to those who were a long way off. And that's us, the Gentiles, and those 2,000 years later. He is still speaking peace to us today. And so now all we must do is receive his gracious offer of peace with God. And if and when we do, what a difference it makes. For even the darkest moment of our lives can instantly be transformed by the peace of God. Because look at that text one more time. We see them hiding behind locked doors for fear. Jesus comes and speaks peace. And what's their reaction? Joy. Overjoyed. He's here and he's alive. Transformed in an instant. There's a great story of Bill and Gloria Gaither. I've shared it once before of how they, many years ago, had written many wonderful gospel songs. I'm sure many of you have their albums. And there's one song in particular that has always blessed me. We have it in our hymnal. We've sung it many times. And Gloria wrote that song in the 1960s while she was expecting her first child. The couple was going through some terrible problems at the time, many challenges of many types. Bill had been seriously sick, and on top of that, much of their music had been receiving harsh criticism, and one of the criticisms was that they weren't spiritual enough. On New Year's Eve, Gloria writes this in her journal. I sat alone in the darkness thinking about the rebellious world and all of our problems, about our baby yet unborn, And who in their right mind would bring a child into a world like this? But then something happened. And she said, I can't quite explain what happened in that next moment. But suddenly, I felt released from it all. The panic that had begun to build inside was gently dispelled by a reassuring presence and a soft voice that kept saying, Don't forget the empty tomb. Don't forget 
the empty tomb. Over and over again, this was repeated in her mind. Then I knew I could have that baby and face the future with optimism and trust. For I had been reminded that it was all worth it just because he lives. And out of that experience, she wrote that much love song, Because He Lives. Verse 2 of that song speaks powerfully of the personal and immediate difference that this can make for our lives. Before we had our first child, this verse brought me to tears as we were expecting because I had many of the same thoughts and fears. Shocker, that Gloria did way back in the 1960s. And this is what verse 2 of that song says. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives, but greater still the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Doesn't that just speak to our world today, our situation right now? Because he lives, all fear is gone. Our uncertainty, everything that this life and this world has yet to bring our way, we can face the future with confidence because he lives. And so let me ask you, what circumstances have got you down right now? What are your fears for the future? Whatever they are, I want you to hear Jesus' words spoken personally to you. Shalom. Peace be with you. Jesus speaks peace to our fears. Thirdly, when we encounter the risen Lord, he gives our lives new purpose. Verse 21, Jesus continued, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Marching orders, if I ever heard them. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, while the disciples were huddled for fear in that locked room, I'm almost certain that even if not spoken aloud, the thought that was in the back of every disciple's mind was this. What do we do now? We pinned all of our life's ambitions, our hopes, our dreams on Jesus. And now he's dead. Now he's gone. So what do I do with my life? Where do I go without him? We know that some of them would go back to being fishermen. But after all of the incredible things that they had seen and experienced with Jesus, what a hollow existence that would have been to go back to the fishing nets after they had walked on water for Peter. To go back to that after Jesus said, cast your net on the other side, and he had, and it had sunk his boat. To go back to just being an old fisherman and try to forget it all. What an empty life. Today, there are many people living equally hollow existences apart from Jesus. And invariably, at some point, they realize that, you know what, this life is not satisfying me. Something is missing. And so they ask, why am I here? What is the point of my life? And the search for the meaning of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. Primarily because we begin at the wrong starting point. We begin at ourselves. We ask self-centered questions like, what do I want to be? What should I do with my life? What are my goals? What are my ambitions, my dreams? You see, our wrong starting point is ourselves. When we focus on the I's and the me's, 
this will never reveal our life's high purpose and calling. The true meaning of life can only be discovered by beginning at the correct starting point. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 tells us what that correct starting point is. Listen. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all of creation. Then verse 16 concludes, everything was created through him and for him. Everything was created through him and for him. Everything includes me. Everything includes you. Now, I don't know if anyone has ever told you this, but if, if you haven't been told this before, I'm here to tell you today. Your life is not about you. Is that hard to hear? Your life is not about you. Your life was not even created for your own enjoyment or for your own pleasure. Does that rattle your chains a little bit? Your life isn't here to try to you know, squeeze as much out of it for yourself as you possibly can, have as much pleasure as you can, you know, achieve as many goals as you can, live as long as you can. That's not what your life is for. It's not about you. It's about the one who made you. Everything was made through him and for him. That is Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. Your life is for Jesus. Now, some people have been the center of their own personal universe for so long that they will be offended by this. And they'll scoff at it, and they'll continue along their not-so-merry way, and all the while wonder why their life seems so empty, and why everything they grasp for seems to be just a mirage. I've laid hold of it now, but poof, it disappeared in my fingers, even as I laid hold of it. Why is my life so empty? What, what is the one thing that a billionaire says will satisfy him. What is the one thing? Just one more dollar. Right? What more could you need when you have billions? Just one more. Because it's never enough. Never. And if we return again to the disciples, we clearly see that without Jesus, their lives are ruled by fear and devoid of purpose. All they can do is hunker down. This is all we got. We're going to try to just stay in this room. That's it. Without Jesus, fear ruled their life. They have no purpose. But then here comes Jesus, and he says to them, Listen, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And what a difference that made. Because we see in the years to come, in the, in the months, in the years ahead, that not only were Jesus' lives transformed radically, fear was just poof, gone, they are empowered, emboldened. They go out, they get flogged, they're coming back out preaching. They get in prison, they're like, all right, well, maybe we'll die, but maybe an angel will deliver us. And out we go and we're preaching again. And you know what? Those 11 men, they went out and they shook the world forever and we're here today as a result of it. Right? What a difference. Jesus came, he says, I'm sending you. They embraced the mission passionately and they proceeded to change the world. So let me ask you, what is the purpose of your life? What is the purpose? Who are you living your life for? Because the answer to that question will make all the difference. And all I can tell you is my personal testimony is this. The best thing I ever did in my life was to embrace the fact that my life's purpose is not about me. 
It's about Jesus. And once I discovered that correct starting point, I wake up every morning and I know exactly why I exist on planet Earth. And for every one more day that I'm given, I know who this day is to be lived for. And so every day I wake up and I know my starting point is Jesus, my life is for Jesus, this day is for Jesus, it's why I exist, and it's what I'm supposed to do with my short time here on earth. And so my life's purpose is to live every day walking with Jesus in relationship, and then listen to what the Spirit says, help lead others towards him, help to encourage others along the way, and this is what I'm called to do. And so yes, when we encounter the risen Lord, he gives our lives purpose. But now there's one more thing we need than just purpose. We need power. And when we encounter the risen Lord, he gives us power. Verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the powerful outworking and outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost Sunday was still to come. And and so it seems that here for this unique occasion, Just between the the resurrection and Pentecost Sunday yet to come, the Lord Jesus graciously breathes on his disciples the Holy Spirit as sort of an interim power to first give peace to their souls, give understanding to their minds of what was unfolding so that they could finally grasp what had happened, and third, to empower them for the mission yet ahead. And of course, as we already know, the full and permanent power of the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost And praise the Lord, it is that same spirit and that same power that indwells every child of God today to empower us to live out God's purpose for our lives. Romans 8 verse 11 tells us this. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. How much power did it take to raise Jesus from the dead? Well, however much power it took, the spirit had enough. However much power it required, the Spirit was not lacking. The Spirit had enough. And so, if that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, how much power do you need to live out God's purpose for your life? Is it enough? Or is something lacking? You say, ah, I I feel weak. I don't have enough power. Well, be filled by the Spirit, my friends. Call on the Spirit. Say, Lord, I'm lacking, but I know you have enough for me. Fill me. Empower me to live out your purpose for my life. And I guarantee you, the Lord will. Verse 11 continues, And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit, again, living within you. Remember, we are temples of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. The power is enough to live out the purpose for which God has sent us. Friends, listen, Jesus Because Jesus lives, not only do our lives have purpose, but by the Spirit, they now have power. And of this fact, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once said, Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without the wind, branches without sap, coals without fire. We are utterly useless. And yet, filled with the Spirit, we may cross the great oceans, stretch out our limbs to the sky, and burn bright with holy fire. This is the power that we receive from an encounter with the risen Lord. And finally, when we encounter the risen Lord, he puts our doubts to rest. 
Now, in verses 24 and 25, we learn that Thomas was not with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared to them. And so when he arrives and they tell him the incredible news, Thomas replies, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. What a statement. Thomas, he had seen Jesus say to Lazarus, 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 come forth. And perhaps Thomas had been one of the ones who had helped unwrap the bandages off of Lazarus, who had been dead for four days in the grave. And here we see Thomas hardening in unbelief, saying to his other brothers, you might have seen it, you might have heard it, but unless I touch it, unless I feel it, I will not believe. You see how insidious unbelief is? How doubt, once it's allowed to take hold, can creep in to even a man like Thomas. Now some of you might be much the same as Thomas, where you have more doubts than faith. Now notice in this statement, Thomas says, I don't entirely dismiss it, I just need concrete evidence. He's an evidence guy. There's still a little room, a little wiggle room, that he says, I could be persuaded, but still we see there's far more doubt than faith. Now some of you may have heard the testimonies of others about what Christ has done for them. Many of you will have heard testimonies of incredible healing. Just last Sunday, we heard, we heard Barry from Union Gospel Mission stand right here and share how he had been a drug dealer and, and a violent man and all sorts of terrible things he had done for 40 years until he met Jesus. And now he's in church sharing his testimony. We heard this just last Sunday. All sorts of testimonies and evidence have been presented and yet, perhaps there's something in the back of our mind that says, but I haven't seen it. I haven't experienced it. Am I just supposed to take other people's word for it? And so there's Thomas, and that may be you today. And incredibly, though we see Thomas hardening his heart, Jesus wonderfully, mercifully met Thomas exactly where he was in his doubt, in his unbelief, and he provided the evidence that he longed for. I heard a story of a man who was driving his sport utility vehicle when he came upon a detour sign blocking the road that read, Road Under Repair. Now this guy's driving an SUV, so he's not going to be put off by a little road work, so he just goes around that barricade and keeps going on down the road. Well, he thinks he's, he's got the world by the tail because, yeah, there was some rough road and a couple of things he had to go around, but his SUV was a match for all of it, and so he was just cruising along for about 20 miles. But finally, he comes around the last bend, and he has to hit the brakes hard because right in front of him is a gorge, and the bridge is out. Dead end, turn around. There is no way past this gorge with the bridge out. And finally, he realizes that way back 20 miles ago, he should have listened to the sign. And so he hangs his head, he turns around, and he drives all the way back to the detour sign. When he approaches the same sign, he then happened to see what some smart aleck had spray-painted on the back of the detour sign, which read these words, Welcome back, stupid. <laughs> Welcome back, stupid. Now here's Thomas. Jesus had told him straight up, 
I'm going to die. I'm going to go in the grave three days. I'm going to rise again. All of the evidence, all of the witnesses, Mary, the other disciples, and he's saying, nope, won't believe it. What did he deserve? What kind of welcome did he, did he you know, really have earned when Jesus finally appears once more? Welcome back, stupid. Right? But how does Jesus respond to Thomas? We see here, as in the parable of the prodigal son, that God welcomes us back, not with a lecture, not with words that cut, but instead he, he's longing, he's looking, he sees the son coming, and he runs out to meet him, he wraps his arm around him. Welcome back, son. And in this we see the heart of the father, and we see the heart of his son. Because without a doubt, I can picture when Jesus appears before Thomas, smiling. Smiling to the point of being near laughter because of that look of utter astonishment and joy on Thomas's face when he finally sees that Jesus is truly risen and alive. Hey, Thomas, you need to touch, touch. You need to feel, feel. And I'm imagining at this point, Thomas, he's resisting. He's, he's ashamed of his doubt, but I'm sure Jesus made him touch and feel. Because Thomas, listen. You need to believe. Once and for all, put these doubts to rest. And Thomas does. He falls on his knees before Jesus and he exclaims, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. This is the strongest statement in any of the Gospels as to the deity of Jesus, that he is both Lord and God. And further, Thomas makes it personal. My Lord and my God. And church, church history records that Thomas, having finally laid his doubts to rest once for all, later traveled to India. He spread the good news about Jesus, and there they eventually had to kill him in order to keep him from telling the story of his resurrected Lord and God. You see, just as with Thomas, the Lord Jesus, he did not hide from him. He did not hide from his doubts. He was not afraid of Thomas's fears. No, Jesus went right to him and he laid his doubts to rest. My friends, Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. He is not afraid of your questions or your fears. He's ready to meet you exactly where you are right now, today. Say, touch, feel, believe the evidence. Put your doubts to rest once and for all. For you see, my friends, we live by faith, not by sight. That's the way he has designed life to work. And we know him, we experience him, and we follow him through faith. And Jesus' reply to Thomas is a wonderful promise for all of us today. He said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But listen, blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. And so too, my friends, whether in a locked room or in a lockdown, no matter the circumstances of life, when we encounter the risen Lord in a personal way, he speaks peace to our fears, he gives our lives new purpose, he gives our lives power, and he puts our doubts to rest once and for all so that we may receive his grace, experience his peace, and live courageously for him. Amen. Lord Jesus, today we humbly declare my Lord and my God.
That is who you are. You are alive. And because you live, we too shall live. And so because of you, we choose to live without fear. We choose to receive your new marching orders that as you had been sent by the Father, so you have sent us into the world. And even more, you have filled us by the same Spirit that rose you from the dead, that we are empowered to live out this mission. And so, Lord, we we declare emphatically today that our lives are not about us. It's not about me. It's about you and for you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would live this out with boldness, with joy, with courage, and that we would leave here today fully persuaded, having our doubts laid to rest once and for all, that you are alive, and it makes all the difference. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.